Supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long. Panasonic Air Conditioning, Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. Now a ticket tap. Supercars, unforgettable. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hi everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now my guest on the podcast this week is Grant Denyer. He's everywhere on your TV, he's danced with the stars, he's family feuded, uh, he's sun risen, I think that's a term. Anyway, uh, we're talking more about his motor racing though on the V8 Sleuth podcast and we've covered a whole pile of cool stuff in part one. If you didn't get to listen rewind back through our files and have a listen to part one with Grant before you step into this one, part two. Now, on this part two, he talks about his breakthrough development series, Podium, uh, which came at Malala in South Australia in 2005. It's scary to think that's 15 years ago. It was also the same year as his massive Clipsal shunt in his debut in the development series uh, in 2005, that same season. He talks about driving for WPS Racing in the endurance races at Bathurst and how the deal came to be and how he was ending up uh, riding in Craig Gore's helicopter in Queensland. At the moment, he chose between his TV and his driving careers, and as per always with our guests, he tackles the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions and the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. Now, I chatted to Grant recently over a Zoom call. He was at home in Bathurst. I was at V8 Sleuth headquarters, and I must warn you, there's a little bit of fruity language in this one. Uh, Uncle Aaron and Uncle Grant every now and then got a bit carried away with their catch-up dropped a few little bombs along the way. Uh, Nothing that was too bad, nothing that would hurt anyone, but it's a little bit of a word of warning. Anyway, buckle up, here we go. Time to start part two of Grant Denyer on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Tim Kidd. So you're probably about five years into racing then. You've done the Utes, you did the the 626 Mazda one-off. You know, you've been putting together a little bit of a body of work, and no doubt along the way, there are people who are saying he's just... He's doing it because he's on the telly. He could get sponsors that we can't. He's not as good as some of the other drivers in the field. You would have heard that plenty around that time. And, and I'm sure that that's not a new thing. But I reckon later that year, and you'll remember this well, and some others might not, the Adelaide thing's really well publicised. And I know you've spoken about it with Rusty and other stuff. But what probably hasn't been so much talked about is later that year at Malala, outside Adelaide, track's still there. It's no longer used for supercar racing. But you finished second. You got on the podium for the first time in your career in Super 2, so that's a bit later in the year. In a 1-2, Dean Canto, who we spoke about before, won that inaugural series, and you were the TV guy. Five years later, he ends up back in the series, and your teammates with him. You finish 1-2, you get your first podium, and I reckon that's when a lot of people in the industry changed their view. That's the motor racing industry who went, hang on a minute, yeah, he's a funny little bastard. Yeah, he does all those crazy pranks. Yeah, he knows how to work it for the sponsors and make it all happen. But I reckon that the penny dropped then to go, actually, the dude can drive too. Did you feel that way, like you became a bit more accepted because you put a result on the board that weekend? 
Yeah, I really needed that result, again, to restore, um, I think, my own faith in the self after Clipsal, of wondering, am I a pretender? Am I only here because of television? And I got sponsors. So I, I knew I had the talent. I just needed time to apply it. And, you know, I remember I was behind Warren Luff, who was P2, uh, at that particular moment. No, 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 no. You must call him by his official V8 ute name, the Rock Dog. <laughs> the Rock Dog. I was behind the Rock Dog. And I knew, and we'd had some ding-dong battles over the years. And he was incredible in a production car, which a ute was. Um, but we were sort of in supercar machines now. And, you know, I, in all fairness, I think my, my car was probably better prepared than his was at that time. But he had a lot more experience and pace. He'd been racing for years and years and years. Uh, and I was like, I got this sniff of the podium and I wanted to make it a DJR one too. And I remember just throwing it up the inside of him and the last lap in the last little quirky kind of flip-flop bend just before the start finish, finish line and, and pulling that off. And that was a hugely emotional moment for me and, and probably a moment where it sank in. I thought, shit, I can do this. You know, I can go all the way. I dreamt of it when I was a kid that I could be one of these. I could be Peter Brock. I, I could be Dick Johnson. I could be Craig Lowndes. You know, they're, they're, now I was at least on the right path. So that, that was, I felt like a massive weight lifted off because I felt up until that point I'd pretended. I pretended to be a racing car driver. I pretended to know what I was doing and, and that I deserved to be there. I just needed the result to cement it. And that did. So, DBS for you was a, a category that kind of was where you did most of your work there for a while. So uh, you did two years with DJR. Uh, so, you know, you got your learning year, then you stepped it up. I think you missed one at Wakefield because you had some TV on and, and Luke Yildon, who we chatted to on the podcast a little while back, filled in for you for the weekend. That was a problem with my career at that point is that uh, is I, I had these, would have been like the Australia's Got Talent live grand final. Or, it was, yeah. I think that's what it was. And that was a very difficult decision for me to make, knowing that my heart was more in motorsport than it was in television. But I just knew the enormity of the opportunity and I had to duck out of the championship, which I had to do quite a few years, which... Always hurt me championship-wise, but it was the reality of where I was. What led you, mate, to the, the Ford Rising Stars program in, in 07? So you did a couple of years with DJR. Why did you change there? You and Michael Caruso ended up as, as teammates there, and it was the Jim Morton team run out of Sydney. How did you end up there, and how did that all come to be? Looking for a cheaper deal, to be honest, because it was you know very expensive. DJR ran a really good car and a really good deal for us, but we were just looking for something that was a little bit more affordable long-term that we could maybe spend a little bit more um, uh, in other areas. And, yeah, I was just – and they came – they went to Ford and Ford back to this junior program and, um, yeah, we, we ran, a, we ran a, a team there. That year too, you couldn't get away from Caruso because you both ended up in – in the Enduros at WPS. Now, he spoke to us a while back yeah. and told us the story about... Uh, so, you two were split for Sandown. I think you were with Barg. Uh, he was with yeah. Max Wilson. Then they put the two regulars together for Bathurst and you two bozos together in the, the second car. Yep. He told us a story about that there was this big pep talk meeting with Craig Gore before qualifying and he, and, and he got nominated to qualify like a second before qualifying on the Friday afternoon. Do you remember what was going on with all of that at the time? I can't, no, I can't remember to be honest. No. I, Where did that work I, in from your memory back? Yeah, it was, it was so, yeah, it was surreal. It wasn't my first Bathurst. It was my second Correct, it was. Bathurst. 
So I'd done one before, but yeah, it was, we'd swapped, I'd run with Bugs at Sandown and we'd gone, all right, I think we were like 14th or 16th or something like that. We'd had a, we'd had a mechanical issue, which we fixed, but um, they decided to put us two, you know, super two teammates or um, Dunlop series teammates together. And, and you know, he was, Caruso was faster. So I, he would have qualified for sure. But Gory was such a crazy captain of a team. He was just making the wildest calls, just shooting from the hip, like on the fly. And he's on the radios as well. Just he's dictating pit stops. There's not a hell of a lot of science going on. There's no graphs. There's no computer nerds. There's no like scholars and academics in the team who are crunching the numbers. Gorley's just like, oh, let's come in now, put some fuel in. I reckon it's a great idea. Like, <laughs> so you just go, okay, Gorley, let's do it. He picked me up. I was, it was at Indy. I was up there doing some commentary. He goes, oh, he, he gives me a call. And he goes, oh man, I'd like you, uh, I'd like to drive for me a bath. I'm like, wow, this is, this is awesome. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. He goes, I'll, I'll send the chopper. So he said, I'm like, how cool is this? All right. This is rock star. Sends the chopper to the track, picks me up, takes me to his house, does the deal, shakes my hand, sends me back in the chopper and, and, and jobs on. And I went, wow, this is, this is like next level motorsport. I like this. No Learjets for any future deals after that, just choppers. Hey, you talked about um, why that Ford Rising Stars deal came to be. And then I think you ended up, moving at the end of the year to Matty White's team. And, and there's a few listeners on our podcast who are, uh, they're hardcore. And (laughs) there is a a massive group that is building by the day who are fans of, you'll remember this guy, David Thexton, the Kiwi who came to great V8 supercars. We did a story about one of his old cars on our website recently, and it went bananas off the scale Bigger and better than anything that's been done about wing cups, cars, lounge cars, Brock's cars. But I have to tell them now something very special that will make them very excited and probably clip this bit of audio and listen to it a million times over. So remember when you won your first DVS race in 2008 with Matty White's team? Yeah. The Blue Summit Falcon at Sandown? Yep. You were driving the car that David Thexton's team had originally built that he had not really ever qualified terribly many times to drive in the main championship. But you, my friend, are the only man to take a Thixton Falcon <laughs> in supercars history. No way. That's nerdy. That's that, nerdiness. That super nerdy. I had no idea of the history of the car. I knew Matty White would sort of, you know, he, he used to drive when I was a commentator of, of the series back in the very first year of, of, of the Dunlop series or Super 2. So, but I had no idea of the history of that car. I remember the race though. It was, I um, or sprinkling. Started well. to rain. I was yeah. I was I was in the lead, and it had started to rain, and it was like, oh my god, please don't throw this off the road while you're leading, because you're about to win your first ever race in a V8 supercar. Like, like terrified, going up the back straight, the windscreen wipers on, turning in over the top of the hill, going, I don't know if it's going to stick, <laughs> but I'd like to stay in front. <laughs> And having this mega battle with whoever it was behind me, it was it was huge. I remember my whole family crying, and my sponsors were there, and they were crying, and it was just, yeah, it was it was a massive massive moment. And I'm just so glad I just didn't throw it into the fence. Mate, there was more water in the pit lane from you bawling your eyes out than there was on the racetrack. <laughs> we're criers, us Daniels, when things go well, <laughs> um, because it means a lot to you, mate. There's been so much sacrifice and, and so much work done in raising the money and building the relationships and finding a team that can put a car together that's quick 
And when all of those thousand inputs finally work to get a result, it's, you know, it's a massive outpouring of relief and emotion. And, and I'm, I'm so proud of that race. It, 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 meant, it meant a lot to me. And again, it was another, another reminder that, you know, you're, you are on track. Keep going. You are, it's okay. You deserve to be here. Although everyone thinks you're a TV wanker and that you're just, most people thought I was in the celebrity race, you know, for, for most of my career. And to that, I say, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) We do have a warning on this podcast at the beginning. So the F word I think is okay. uh, I think, but for any of the kiddies listening, um, don't be like Grant in all ways, just in some ways, just in some ways. It used to make me so angry though, when people would go, Oh, are you, uh, Oh, you race cars. Do you, are you in the celebrity race at the Grand Prix? And I was like, Oh, only if you knew mate, when I started out at that go-kart track when I was young, on my own, trying to push my own go-kart to get myself started. What is the most popular question that you've been... I mean, I think there's, in your television lives, there was the, the sunrise weather and family feud. Which thing have you been asked the most over the years that shits you more? What's the weather going to be tomorrow? <laughs> or survey says, which one do you get most? Uh, I get equal, absolutely equal. Hey, what's the weather doing tomorrow? And I could, it's funny, because the weather, you'd be in a different part of the country every single day, right? And that town would come out in force and stand behind you while you showcase their town for the country. In your mankini occasionally too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, various get up. <laughs> And I can always tell you what the first two or three questions someone's going to say to me when they meet me. And I'd say this to the crew. I say, get ready for this. This bloke's going to say, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? And are you still racing? And, and then, and then what do you love about the Utes? Watch this. And then sure enough, they'll come up. (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough, like I still get people, I I had this the other day, like someone came up to me and go, mate, I love, I love watching you in the Utes. I love, I love the fact that you're still racing the Utes. It's awesome. And I go, mate, I haven't been in the Utes for, I don't know, 10 years, 15 maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So are you sure you're watching, mate? (laughs) But it's, I think it, the punters love the Utes and they just love that period. And, and it's the same, people still think I'm on Family Feud, you know, right now. And that, you know, that hasn't been on air for, for three years. It's coming back. And by the time you might be listening to this, it might be still on air now after it's coming back for a COVID special. But yeah, it's, it's funny. You, people remember you for little moments in your life. And, and sometimes that's, that's, that's how they cling to you. But it's, it's nice that they remember. The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free, because here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't. They'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500. Book now at Ticketek. It's nice to be clinged to than uh, pushed away, I guess. It's better to be spoken about than not spoken about at all, apparently. Yeah, true, true. Hey, the wheel of supercars came back for you to Dick Johnson Racing. And 
obviously it's been well covered the two th- the monster truck stuff that put you literally on your back for quite some time took you out of a drive at Bathurst in the Rising Stars car with Michael Patrizzi. Um, all that momentum that you'd been building and, you know, you got that first win at that Sandown round mid that year. All that momentum was starting to go the right way and then obviously it's stopped in an instant. But you got back and not only did you get back, but you won. You came back and you won in, in DVS with Dick Johnson's team. So did it kind of feel like coming full circle back to the place that you first started your V8 stuff with, but it was like unfinished business. And, and, and you, I think you punched out, you're on the podium more times than you weren't that year. You won some races. I think, is it right that Adrian Burgess was on your radio yeah. that year? From my yeah. How did you even understand ATB? I, I heard his insults. <laughs> <laughs> I respond well to insults as it turns out. Yeah, it was that, that whole broken back period was so crap. Um, and, you know, watching your car start Mount Panorama without you in it was 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 a very emotionally destroying moment. Plus, I was very unwell. I was very, I was in a lot of pain. I didn't know how good I was going to be in the long term. You know, I was, I was afraid. I was a, I was afraid of, am I going to be stuffed forever with this injury? And then, I couldn't give a crap about television at that point. The, the only way for me to get through that whole period was to use motorsport as the light at the end of the tunnel, as the, as the carrot on the stick to get well again. And I needed motivation because my headspace was not great. You know, it's, a, it's when you ha- when the handbrake's pulled on your life like that, when you've been living pedal to the metal in TV and in motorsport, it was, um, it wasn't easy to deal with or process. So I thought, and I was in a real funk, you know, I couldn't, I just, I was really lost and, and I just thought, I, I, I've got to get back on the track. I have to, as for, for my own sanity and mental health and well-being, I need to get back on the track and I need to win a race. Because when I win a race, I know that I can close the book on this horrible period and I know that I'm fine again. And so I used motorsport as that motivation. Tony Quinn threw me in the car for uh, the 12 hour. Uh, I could barely walk, but I could drive. He took me to Nürburgring, same story. Um, We we had a great run in Nürburgring in Germany and finished sixth out of like 300 cars. Um, But once I could get back in a supercar and do well again, you know, life kind of, the rainbows reappeared. Life turned back to colour instead of black and white and and, and that heavy black cloud lifted. So like to to, to get back in and I think it was, I was, I was on the podium in every round, won four or five races, and I needed that for my own sanity. Um, I, really, I really did. And it was at that point that I decided, okay, I've proven my point. I'm okay now. I've won races. Now what am I going to do for the long term? And it was at that moment after have, coming back and, and doing so well that I decided to give the sport away and decided, okay, I now have to focus on my future and, you know, I had Dick Johnson pulling me aside as well, going, bro, you, you, well, he didn't say bro because he's 75. <laughs> <laughs> but he pulled, me, he, pulled me aside. <laughs> he pulled me aside for a mentor chat, which I appreciated and said, look, you can't do both. You can't make television Monday to Friday and run yourself ragged in a different part of the country every single day. Turn up to a racetrack, knackered, pull a helmet on, go out on the track, do 300K an hour. Because it's just not, no one else is doing that. All these guys are full time. All these guys are in the gym. They're eating well. They're sleeping well. He goes, if, 
He goes, you can step up. You could step up to the main game. You've got the speed. You've got the talent. You've got the commercial support. He goes, but you can only do one. So what are you going to do? It's one or the other. It's TV or it's motor racing. And I had to make the hardest decision of my life, which was to walk away from my true love, which was motorsport, at the peak of my performance and then put all my eggs into the TV basket just for the, for, for my, for the future of my future family, which I didn't yet have, but I knew I needed to, to build a career for. Was there any way or place in that period where the phone rang? There were offers, there were opportunities to take up deals that you didn't take up or a team that wanted to do a deal or sign you up or get you involved in another program. I mean, we like to go backwards and reveal some of the things that now time means it doesn't matter if you let it out now, but was there any <laughs> phone calls or chats or offers or discussions that maybe were well advanced or plans or plots that didn't come through? Yeah, I'd spoken, I hadn't really done a lot of snooping because I knew I had to make this decision and I'd put it off and put it off and put it off uh, until I had the courage to make the call. Um, but there were opportunities, you know, I had a good commercial sport, you know, any team out there, any, any sniff of a dollar, they'd, they'd all take it. They know where to find it. You know, you look at Caruso's first drive, you know, he took half a million dollars or $400,000 of sponsorship to get that first drive. And there's nothing wrong with that. Michael Schumacher did the same thing for his very first Formula One drive. You know, he paid for it. It's just the reality of the sport sometimes to crack that door open. Um, so there, there were opportunities that, yeah, that we could have pursued. I'm trying to think, but remember Paul Crookshank's team? Yeah, uh, Glenford's team that John Bow drove for and Marcus Marshall. Yeah, we'd, we'd knocked on their door a bit and they were keen, they were interested. There, was, there, were, there were opportunities, but I didn't pursue any of them seriously because, you know, I, hadn't, I had to make the, the, the decision, TV or motorsport. Well, mate, I think it's been a, a damn good decision in the end. And the great thing is you've got back to do a pile of motor racing in the years since, the 12-hour, the GT stuff. Uh, remember Shannon Supercar Showdown, you made a return to Bathurst with the young Cam Waters, taught him everything that he knows. I mean, <laughs> I think he, that weekend, do you remember that he spun that car at the top of the mountain and didn't hit anything? When <laughs> reality says he should have written the thing off and had his career done with, but he got away with that. That is kissed <laughs> on the you-know-what like I've never seen. You know what I love about that? How old was he at the time? 16? Uh, 12? No, 17 16. or 16. He looked 12. Uh, he, it's funny because he had a slow middle sector. And uh, I remember getting on the radio. Uh, I didn't. The, 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 um, <laughs> the team manager did. He said, everything okay? He goes, Cam goes, yep, yep, yeah, everything's fine. He goes, did anything happen? He goes, nah. And he keeps going. He gets back. And then we see on the super screens, he's done this 230 kilometre an hour, like, triple loop and kept it off the wall over McPhillamy somehow and then refused to report it that it happened like just <laughs> denied it like it like a kid who was too afraid to tell his boss on his first day of work that I've stuffed up <laughs> kind of overlooked the fact that Bathurst is the most televised event in Australian television motorsport with about 500 cameras but what uh, a spin what a recovery oh, that is one of the best non-shunts I've ever seen just about um I wanted to ask you too, we love the history of the sport in our little V8 sleuth world in which we operate. Are you a keeper of stuff? Like, have you kept your, your memorabilia, your suits, your trophies, your helmets? Have you, you got your first go-kart? What, what have you, you kept aside <laughs> in the man cave? Yeah, I've, I've actually, I've, for some reason, I hung on to my, I won the a New South Wales karting championship and I've still got the go-kart out of my shed now. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of restoring it and, and putting it, 
properly on display on the wall. Um, it had had a few shunts through that year, so that championship. In fact, I was, that was the go-kart that I was in when I was at the New South Wales State Championship. I won a championship over a series of rounds, but the actual standalone state titles, I was in the front row uh, for the final. I qualified on pole. Um, and I was in the front row for the final, and the person next to me was Leanne Tander. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leanne Ferrier. She wasn't Mrs. Tander then. She was Ferrier then. And uh, Leanne Ferrier, I was P1, she was P2, and she punted me off in the first corner. <laughs> and I've never let her forget it. And if you talk to Garth Tander, I still bring it up to this day, and he pulled me aside. He goes, bro, you got to let it go. you got to let it go. And I said, I can't, man. I can't let it go. That was my first, my first P1, my first pole that I was on. Oh, only been 20-odd years, mate. Yeah, exactly. So we laugh about it all the time, Leanne and I. Uh, it's good. We've had a great relationship since then. But I've got the go-kart. I've got every, every race suit that I've ever had. So I've got Ferrari suits, McLaren suits. I've got Audi suits. I've got Ford, Holden, supercar suits, you know, all the teams. Um, yeah, I've got them. All. I don't know what to do with them yet. So... One, I've never been good at looking back in life, to be honest. I've always been so goal-focused and what's the next run of the ladder and what are my next five steps ahead? I've never really ever looked backwards and, and tried to think about all the cool things that I've done. And this is why the podcast that I'm doing with you right now is really nice because, to be honest, I've, I've never – I've always just moved on and, and had my eyes up the road. But it's really nice to be nostalgic because it's – I've been so lucky and I love this sport so much and I've had some great mentors along the way, you know, blokes like John Bow, you know, who've taught me so much about motorsport and it's just, I lived the dream that I dreamt of as a kid that was, it was wild, wildest dreams. It was a, what would my, the best case scenario for my life be if it ever worked out? And I, I bloody hell, I, it, it happened, you know, it, it happened and I still pinch myself to this day to think that, I was just racing a homemade go-kart around the sheds of a farm out in Wagga Wagga and driving a tractor at 12 years of age. And, you know, I've, I've done many Bathurst races. It's and cool. And that's, of course, you live around the area now, which is kind of a nice synergy to all of that. Now, if Shezzy and the kids ever decide that Dad has to get rid of all of his... That's my beef jerky is ready. <laughs> it's part of living on the farm. I'm now making uh, Grant's prized beef jerky. I can send you some. It's going to yeah, go global. That was the reminder, was it? Yeah. It's, it's, we're going to turn the oven off. <laughs> oh, can we continue or are you going to burn your house down? No, I've, I turned it off. Oh, good. Good man. So if, if Shezzy and the kids ever decide that daddy's stuff needs to leave the house because it's taken up too much room... Why don't you go down to the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama, our good mates down there, Brad Owen and the team. I reckon we could put together the Grant Denyer Motor Racing Exhibition. Surely there's a clunked out V8 ute somewhere we can grab. An yeah. old Dick Johnson Falcon, your go-kart, your suits, your, your second place trophy from Leanne Tander's <laughs> trophy. Oh, no, she punted me so good. I didn't finish second. I was right, right down Okay, well, that's even worse. Way off in the boondocks. Well, you can you can invite her to come and uh, be doing the opening. She can cut the five. ribbon. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go to cut the ribbon, and she'll come from behind me and then cut it before I get there. Yes, that'd be appropriate, wouldn't it? Oh, <laughs> you, still Mate, got an, be, you got an old Channel Ten race suit somewhere lying around? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I've got oh, comedy races. 
Channel yeah. 7, Channel 10 race suits. Um, mate, that'd, that'd be crazy. Yeah, oh, we could make this happen. This We could have started something probably very evil here. Mate, that Bathurst Museum, I went down there the other day and it is stunning. I forgot the quality of the collection of cars um, inside. It's, it's breathtaking. There's such spectacular machines of, of awesome history. It's, geez, it's a good joint. Yeah, well, it's going to get better too because they've just, uh, in the last few weeks, announced that there's a Dick Johnson exhibition later in the year. So a bunch of old cars of, of DJs and bits and pieces. So you might have to lend a, a DJ a race suit or something to, uh, to that one. We'll get back to our chat in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken a world leader in engineered bearings and power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that you're probably relying on Timken products whenever you fly? Timken products have been used since the early days of experimental aircraft flights at the turn of the 20th century, right through to the huge superliners that take us around the world these days. In fact, when your next flight comes into land, it's likely that its landing gear on the plane you're on contains Timken bearings. When a 500-tonne, yes, 500-tonne airplane, touches down on the runway, all of that load is transmitted to the ground through the landing wheels. And when those wheels touch the tarmac, they accelerate from zero to over 280 kilometres per hour in less than a second and experience temperature changes from sub-zero up at 30,000 feet to extremely high heat under braking on the runway. Each year, Timken's vast experience sees more than 12,000 product designs on more than 400,000 active planes, adding up to 1 billion safe landings and allowing 3 billion passengers to reach their destinations. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Loop podcast this year. Now, it's back to our chat. Do you know who's got who's got my uh, the, the supercar that I won the last the races in in that last year that I had? Oh, I was going to say the one with all the bits that were swept up from Adelaide, or the one that you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the good one. I only talk about my victories, mate. The oh, one, yeah. the one that I won four or five races in. Yeah, still still around. I think it's with a private collector off the top of my head. So yeah, great. Yeah, still around, still around. Don't worry, it's uh, it's still floating. I'd hey, love to be reunited with some of that machinery. It um, it'd be awesome. One day, I'm sure we can let you loose. It'll be an historic event by the time we get around to doing all that. But, mate, um, I want to race through a few other bits and pieces. We've had a, an awesome amount of questions. Um, and it's a nice segue, too. I've learnt segues from some of the best in tally to our National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions where our, uh, our social media fans and followers fire in the questions. And I've had to edit them very heavily. Concerning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, concerning. Um, particularly when the first one is from a Mr. C. Denyer, uh, oh. <laughs> who, who I think he might be related. He, he might be your father. He says, how important is Loctite as part of race preparation? <laughs> I feel there's a story here. Yes, there is a story. We laugh about this all the time. Um, whenever I, he goes to do a job, and not do it properly, I remind him of the importance of using Loctite because he was my mechanic at a national karting title once. It was wet. It was the final. I went from the back of the field and I'd work my way through to third and only halfway through the race. I thought, this is looking good. It was wet. I was always quick in the wet. And I was on the podium. I was hunting down a win. And then, my chain sprocket spun off 
and I came, came to rest on the side of the field, walked back. I said, Dad, my sprocket came off. And he goes, yes, oh, yeah. He goes, I forgot to put Loctite uh, to secure the sprocket on, so the bolts have come undone. He goes, oh. I said, what would you do that for? He goes, oh, I, was kind of, I couldn't be bothered. I was over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so to this day, it was like the national championship title that got away from us because of Loctite. Damn you. So is your dad on the same list as Leanne Tander for you? Oh, they're very close. They're, those two, what a pair. <laughs> Bloody hell. No, we laugh about it now, but we were absolutely gutted and soul destroyed. You know, it was the biggest karting event of the year and I was ready to make my mark and then, nah. File. Uh, Daniel Bridge has the next question. Are you a better steerer than your dad or a better commentator? I've got a feeling like he, he's almost written that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good steerer. Um, I remember he, he ran an Alpha Sud series, which yeah. had the likes of Colin Bond and Dick Johnson. Tony Longhurst was in it. Yep. That, like, launched, him. that launched Tony Longhurst. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It did. Um, yeah. And he, I remember him putting it, he was in P2 once um, in his, in his he, he, I think he won the car in a raffle. <laughs> he entered the raffle, won an Alpha Sud, turned it into a race car, went racing and then barrel rolled it at Amaru Park about 10 times. Should have um, sold it. He was, he was a young dad and he, he wasn't able to continue on his motorsport dream. He chose to, you know, to support the family. And, and, but thankfully, you know, he, he was a great mentor for me and, and came up with great motor racing categories like the Utes. So. Uh, he's a great commentator. You know, I, as a kid, I'd, I'd, you know, he'd be doing the circuit commentary for the Bathurst 12 hour and I would run press releases to him as like a, a 12 year old. And that was a great foundation for, for me and a great introduction to the industry. Uh, next question, mate. Uh, this is actually our Castrol question of the week. It's that good. It tickled my funny bone. Uh, Matt Shilin asks, and he put a photo with this on Facebook too, on our, our page. Did you enjoy driving the Mazda 626 at Bathurst? Because there's good news. It's still getting around in production car racing to this day, that very car. No way. It might be Matt's car because he's posted a photo of him racing a 626 Mazda. Now, I'm presuming it's the one and the same that you drove 21 years ago. Maybe we should get that for the museum collection. I've got a picture of it on my wall. Um, That was a cool car. I remember we finished... I finished right behind Greg Murphy and Stephen Richards. So I was clawing them in and I was right on the tail right for the finish and we finished P2. But I remember the, at the start of the weekend, I put it in the sand trap at the end of Conrad Strait twice in the first two practice sessions. <laughs> and so the team went into town, went down to Kmart, came back with a plastic bucket and spade and said, here, if you're going to go out again, you better take this. <laughs> but that was a cool car. It was such a great car to make a debut in. Front-wheel drive V6 beast. Um, Peter Alexander asks, would you ever consider returning to racing a V8 in a lower-tiered class, something like Super 3 or just doing a one-off or, or, or two here or there just, just for fun if you, if you could put it together? I, th- I thought about it. You know, whether uh, to be reunited with an old car of yours would be sort of a cool, it'd be cool motivation to do it. But, yeah, the supercars are... Uh, a really tricky car to drive and you've got to be in them regularly to be able to be any good at it. I've really enjoyed my time in GTs lately, you know, winning the championship with Nathan Morecambe, the endurance championship for McLaren a couple of years back. That was cool. And winning a heap of races in the Ferrari with, with, with Tony D'Alberto. Um, that's kind of, I moved into that sort of 
form of motorsport. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't closed the door on, on supercars, but it might have to be a special reason to return. So, okay. Well, I'm not closing the door on that one. That, that's very much uh, still a jar, shall we say. Uh, and by the way, too, Matt's question I've nominated as our question of the week, thanks to Castrol, because Castrol Grant is more than oil. It's liquid engineering. They provide the oils, fluids, and lubricants for today and the future for every driver, every rider, every industry. Follow them on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport with exclusive comps and much, much more. Uh, they what- gave all my oil for the Ute Championship as well. Ah, yes, nice. It's pretty much... Their history in racing is such that nearly every guest I've ever had on this podcast has had a They might not now, but they've always seemed to have a connection with Castrol somewhere along their motor racing journey, whether it's they drove a Castrol V8 supercar or they use Castrol oil in their go-karts or their Formula Ford or their club car with their dad. Or it's, it's, it's scary that we've pretty much ticked the box with everybody. So synonymous with motorsport and they were quite generous. If you ever went to them and said, look, I'm a little short on budget. Is there anything you could do? It doesn't need to be a giant check with a huge number on it. Just, just can you, can you, can you give us some free fluids just to get us over the line to get to a racetrack, you know, and they've been the first to stump that up just to keep the sport going. So I, I love Castrol because their commitment to it is, is incredible. I agree. I agree. Not just because they're partners of the podcast. It's just but mostly because they're sponsors of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I move along. You know the drill. Um, well, I thought this was an interesting one from Ernie Lowry. He said, "If you could pick any race to go back and redo, and I don't think he's coming from the point of view of um, any that you've had accidents in or things didn't go right, but if you could go back and redo any of your races, which one would it be, and what would you do differently?" And and now that we've had this chat, I'm thinking of that twelve hour where you would have been in that car while Clark Quinn was in the loo because you couldn't want it. Am I right? Had he not been releasing the chocolate hostage, I would have had a suit on and would have jumped in there and increased our chances of winning that race. (laughs) That is so funny, that story. Yeah, uh, (laughs) that I'd redo. My first Bathurst 1000, I'd like to redo again to absorb it because it is such a sensory overload. Imagine living for one moment in your life, and that is to drive your very first Bathurst 1000. I just, I can't remember any of it. It's just, I remember being on the back of the utes as you're driving around, waving at people as people are yelling out, hey, mad dog, yeah, go mad dog, (laughs) Uh, which was awesome. But I can't remember the race. I remember being, we were P3 with about half an hour to go, and we were looking really good. We probably would have finished third on the podium, but like we were in an incredible position. We might have finished fifth, but Alex's seatbelts came undone. Um, just coming out of Forest Elbow, he's yanked on the wheel and he'd knocked his belts with his elbow and they'd sprung open. So we had to come in and, and take an unscheduled pit stop, which put us back to eighth or ninth we finished. So for a debut for a rookie, well, first rookie home, um, that was amazing, but I'd... I'd I can't remember it. I'd love to be able to have do your first all over again. Yeah, really. Is it because you were so amped and overwhelmed by it all that you didn't get the chance to slow down and absorb it, or uh... over, just overwhelmed, oh, yeah, yeah. emotionally overwhelmed that everything in my life had led up to this moment, and and you didn't want to be the bloke who sticks it in the wall. I remember, I remember a couple of things. I remember being the first practice session. I remember going down Conrad Strait, and Greg and I was. I was going around Greg Murphy, who was coming up to speed, but he was, he, he was still going nearly flat out. 
And I remember going over a hump for the first time. And what I didn't realize at 300K an hour is when you have two cars side by side and the car gets light, there's a vortex between that sucks them together. I didn't know that. So I go over this hump side by side going around Greg Murphy, car gets light, cars get sucked together, doors bang, I panic, I roll out, having crapped myself, and Greg Murphy just sticks a finger up out the window. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, rookie, welcome to the big leagues. And I was like, oh, I, oh, these guys aren't messing around. What am I doing here? Like, this is hardcore. I remember at a safety car restart, I remember being towards the front of the chain and like being surrounded by full-time drivers and I was the second driver. And I remember, I remember going into, um, into the cutting and having John Bauer behind me and, and I'm panicking and I'm trying to keep it together. And he gives me a tap onto the way into the cutting and I, I kind of step sideways. He takes the position and then he gives me a nice little really polite wave in the revision mirror. Like, yeah, it's good to have you here, but I'm coming through. Thanks for making it happen. And I, they're, right. the, they're the only two things I can remember from the whole six hours and three days over the weekend. Because I think one of the things I remember out of that and the bit you mentioned about the seatbelt with Alex Davison late in the race is the, the, the me- not memorable, but, you know, it's the thing that probably sticks out because it was still a good result. I think you finished, what, ninth uh, yeah. overall still, which at that time with a field of 32, 34, 35 cars was – and Alex wasn't full-time. He was in Porsches and you were in the second car. So um, I think that was a much better result than even you probably would think to this day because when you drill through it, it was um, – a, a really competitive feel back then. But uh, at the time, so V8s was on Channel 10. That was their last year. But yep. you'd flip because you're on Channel 7 by that stage. Oh, that's right. Did I ever get the feeling, am I remembering right, that you might have made some comments in the aftermath that you felt like your car didn't get the coverage it deserved because <laughs> you were a Channel 7 bloke on a Channel 10 race? <laughs> I, it might, I don't think we got the coverage because we weren't A-grade players in supercars either, you know. We, we, we were two lesser-known drivers in the one car. But, yeah, I think there might have been a bit of politics because the, the sport was about to flick across to seven and I think yeah, 10, well. 10, was pretty, um, 10 was pretty angry about that. And I remember I had been crowned Rookie of the Year at the, at the V8 Supercar Awards and I got up on stage and made some comments that didn't make Channel 10 very happy. So there was the head of motorsport at that, at that point. His name was David White. And I'd already left 10 and gone to 7. And I got up and in part of my speech, I said, I look forward to the supercars moving to Channel 7 for a much more family-friendly network. And I look forward to the sport growing more in Channel 7's hands. And uh, David White, who was my former employer, stood up and stormed out at that moment. And I, I think I, I made an enemy of that man from that point on. It's, I said it in jest. It was sort of a joke. But um, Channel, the head of Channel 10 Sport never forgot it. Let's just leave it at that. All right. We shall leave it at that. Before we finish up, the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout is our fancy form of uh, word association, mate. It is for Motor Focus, who are uh, the home of quality scar models. They stock all the big brands, much, much more. Jump on their website if you're looking for an old crib safe Falcon BF, maybe, or a, I'm not sure they've done a Summit 
Falcon Ute model. Did they do one of those in the journey? Yeah, yeah there was one. Yeah. It was, was kind of like the, it was blue and yellow and had KFC on the bonnet. Yeah, with Summit Fleet leasing on. Yeah, there was one done. Yeah, oh, crim, crim safe model. There might just be a Grand Denier model car floating around at motorfocus.com.au. You can stop in and visit them if you're in Queensland, uh, not in uh, Melbourne, which is where I'm currently camped and not allowed to go anywhere. Uh, they're at Unit 9, number one stock, Stockwell place, I should say, in Archerfield, Queensland. There, we've got the plug-in for Dimitri and the great team at Motor Focus. So you tell me the first thing that comes into your head, ideally yep. one word, but maybe two or three, to describe the following things that I'm going to wheel out. You ready? Yep. V8 Brutes. Wild. That's very PG-rated. Uh, Bathurst. Scary. Particularly when your seatbelts are undone. Uh, <laughs> Dick Johnson. Uh, cool. Yeah. Man. No, no, he didn't say that, did he? Um, <laughs> bro. Bro, bro, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> you got to do the joke, Aaron, get it right. Um, sunrise. Yeah, fun. Yeah, fun. Crazy fun. Tony Quinn. <laughs> lunatic. <laughs> the funniest bloke I reckon I've ever met, but a flat-out lunatic. Uh, I yeah, that's hard to disagree with. Uh, trackside. Uh, foundation. Mm. Yeah, for where it all started. Mini challenge. <laughs> uh, first year was good. I, I, I broke my back midway through that first year. Mini challenge. Um, yeah, it, it was a great series. Did you say one word? <laughs> Probably a couple more, but if we put hyphens between them all, it makes it one word, so that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, he was, he was yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, here's a guy we haven't talked about, Alan Grice. <sighs> Iconic. Um, just a, again, a really hilarious bloke. Um, a cool guy to have a race car team with. Like, we, we, we were together. We were teammates in the Utes for, for a couple of series. Just, I'm just in awe of that dude. Everything is achieved. My favourite car in, in, in motor racing history is the 86 Chickadee Bathurst winning Commodore, which he drove with Graham Bailey. You know, that's it's fluoro colour paint scheme of pink, orange and yellow. Just a stunning looking tough as nails car. And he was just a tough as nails dude, tough as nails driver. Just, just the ultimate Australian. That's a good way to describe him. That, that's good. I, I like that. And the other thing that not many people realise is the PR guy for that team that year at Bathurst was your dad. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. I've still got the team shirt from that year somewhere. That's um, probably worth a few dollars, my friend. Yeah, it probably is, actually. Gricey was funny. When I was trying to come to grips with braking, his advice to me, I said, how do you master this? When do you know when to brake? He goes, get to the point where you shit yourself, wait another second, then brake. <laughs> <laughs> and funnily enough, that theory actually works because you, you have an inbuilt, an inbuilt self-defense mechanism where your body never really allows you to hurt itself, right? So you've got to override, you've got to rewire that system. And, and, and what he's saying is true. You've got to get to the point where you think it's going to go wrong, know that it doesn't, and then go further. And once you can reprogram your brain that way you've pretty much you know you'll you'll master breaking and he yeah the, the cat in the hat taught me that i won't try that on the drive home by the way <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it's a good idea uh two to go barry sheen 
Yeah, I was only remembering his, his, the moment I found out about his passing the other day. Um, oh, man. Proper rock star. Yeah. Proper rock star. Got away I, with so much stuff that no one else could get away with. Sometimes I drove him to the track. Um, at that point, um, yeah, I'd, I'd give him a lift to the track. And I remember him being in the back. There was someone else in the front with me. And I remember him being on the phone when Elton John rang through. <laughs> And he's just going, hello, darling, how are you? You're right, are you, Elton? You're good. And I thought, oh, my God. And I just listened to him chat to And they were just, just chatting along like a couple of schoolgirls. It was – and none of the circles that, that that dude traveled in and, and that kind of level, you know, it's – he tells such great stories. He tells this great story about um, Gerhard Berger and, and Ayrton Senna. And how Gerhard Berger used to always get on Ayrton Senna's nerves, like how he tried to just sort of get inside Ayrton's mind and crack him so he could kind of conquer him on the track. And they were flying in a helicopter one day together and Ayrton's got this briefcase which he has everything in his life. Just He's just in this briefcase, all his most important documents, you know, his data sheets from that day, his engineer reports and his passports and his life, right? So Gerhardt, they're flying, you know, in, in 10,000 feet, whatever they're flying at. Gerhardt opens the helicopter door, grabs, grabs the briefcase, throws it out, just throws it, gone, and then close the door. And is just like freaking out, what are you doing that for? And Gerhardt just laughs, just laughs. And like Barry was just full of all these wonderful stories, you know, just, yeah, really lucky to have had a, just a, a tiny bit of Barry in my life. It, it, better to have Barry away from the racetrack. Don't have a Barry on the racetrack because that gets expensive and usually involves concrete walls. Um, <laughs> I've got one more to go. I've left the best until last in the Motor Focus Top 10 shootout. Drum roll, please. <laughs> I'm not sure we've got a drum roll sound effect here in the uh, the audio system, but we'll find one anyway. Craig Denyer. <laughs> Couldn't have done it without him. He's well, my hero. That, that makes it one word. Oh, hero, hero. There you go. Hero. My hero. Yeah. He, what, what he's taught me about life and how to conduct yourself and the ethics of being a professional and, and yeah, he, he's my hero. He, I, I wouldn't be racing without him. And he, um, when it came to working, I've never watched someone work with such grace and style and generosity, just how he treated other people. And he always told me, he goes, you know, he was, he was the guy who always said, if you can't be good, be cheap. (laughs) 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 Which, you know, which is true. And I used to great effect. Um, But his professionalism, I've I've never seen anything like it. And if I could be 10% of that, of what that man is, you know, then I'd, I'd be doing pretty well in life. So anyone who's ever met him, you know, says he's a wonderful human being. And I can attest to that. You know, he's, he's, he's been a a great father and and an awesome mentor and I love him to bits. Uh, Nicely put mate. We'll, uh, we'll have to get him on the podcast to return serve at some stage, I'm sure. And there's, Oh, he'll have plenty, mate. He'll probably have right a say over about Loctite gate and, uh, (laughs) Leanne Panda gate and, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, and, oh, I'm brake pad gate of the Ute series in, in Adelaide. So, And that'll be just part one. Uh, that was his fault. We'll have to do about five-part series to get through all the topics with him. Uh, <laughs> uh, just quickly before we end up, what's, 
your, your motor racing view these days? Are you just going to pick stuff like the six hour, hopefully in November that runs in the, the Mustang that you talked about with Quinny and the, an odd 12 hour or just the odd one here or there that pops up and it all plays in your world. That's, that's going to give you your fix at the moment for racing. Yeah, pretty, pretty flexible. It is like a disease that you can't get out of your system and, and it needs to, that itch needs to be scratched. Otherwise you become quite an unpleasant person to be around <laughs> as my wife will attest to. So I, I still need to do some, whether it's production car racing or a bit of GT racing, um, the world is in such turmoil at the moment and it'll depend on, you know, what the TV landscape is also going to be. So all being said and done, yeah, I'll continue to race. You know, I love endurance racing at Mount Panorama. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, I've been doing some driving for Lotus, so whether that continues, that'd be nice. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not ready to hang it up yet. I'm learning to fly, uh, planes at the moment because I'm kind of looking for something that might replace that, that motorsport aspect of, of my life when I'm ready to hang up my helmet because I think I'll need something. Otherwise I'll go, I know what it was like when I had no motorsport in my life when I broke my back and. <laughs> that wasn't a cool place to be. So I need something else in its place if that happens. Mate, I'm sure you'll find something that's got a motor in it, on it, around it, under it to, to keep you entertained. Before we finish up too, mate, we talked about the DVS. Uh, 33 rounds you started between 2005, 2016. This is just an excuse for me to use my stats database and wheel some numbers in here. But I think a lot of the times... Uh, guys like yourself don't stop and look at what you've done. And like you said before, you don't spend much time looking back. You're always being a look forward kind of guy. 33 rounds, 81 individual races, four race wins, six podiums, a big fat donut though for pole positions. But you can join some illustrious names very recently on the podcast, none other than Scott McLaughlin. The only donut he has in his Super 2 career is pole positions. So does that make you feel better? <laughs> it does make me feel better. <laughs> Yeah, that makes me feel a lot better. Oh, God. I remember leading Bathurst, Bathurst in the Super 2 uh, series and throwing it off the road in the rain. <laughs> so I've, I've been at the front a few times. I just could never convert. I've, oh, yeah, no, I, no, no pole positions. I wasn't a great qualifier in supercars. For whatever reason, I could just never dial it in. Um, great race pace, great on starts, terrible qualifier. <laughs> Sunday's race day, mate. You get no points for Saturday. You know that better than anybody out there. Mate, thank you so much for sitting down with us. I know that um, when we told our, our listeners and our, our social media followers that you're going to come on, there was literally a pile of, of emails and, and Facebook posts and the like. Uh, it's been great to look back with you across 20 years. I know there's plenty more chapters of cool stuff that you will no doubt do. Thank you so much for keeping us all entertained on our screens for so many years. Would you, though, last question, swap the gold Logie for a Bathurst trophy. Oh, hell yeah. Like in two seconds. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about that, my friend. Bloody hell. I know where my heart lies. <laughs> yeah. Now, thanks for having me on, mate. I, I always get a bit nervous when I get asked to sort of do this sort of stuff for motorsport because, you know, I, I, I have this feeling that a lot of people think that, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a pretender or a guy from a celebrity car race. So it's, it's, it's nice to reminisce. And I, I appreciate those that have been listening for, for hanging in there and, and, and I hope you've enjoyed a couple of stories as, as much as I've looked, loved looking back at them, mate. So thanks, Aaron. There you have it. Grant Denyer, run and won on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Tim. And a big thank you to Grant. It was great to catch up. Obviously, he's such a busy guy these days. He's in a whole other stratosphere from uh, his early days. So it's hard to get a, a bit of time with him here and there. But he's so giving 
uh, and so welcoming, and I really appreciated the time to sit down and catch up with a guy who uh, I've known for well 20-odd years, and it's been amazing to see what he's done, not just in his motor racing career, but outside of that as well. He's a, a household name, a household face, and I tell you what, he does such a great job, and I'm not... Uh, I'm not with Channel 10, I'm not on the plug with anyone, but I love what he does with Family Feud. He makes that uh, really great. It is a tragedy that that show is not uh, a full-timer on TV anymore. Anyway, enough of me and what I think about TV in bits and pieces. Again, a big thank you to Grant and to everyone who's sending questions. We had more questions that we could uh, that we could really deal with. Uh, don't forget to bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. It's the place to go to buy our latest Bathurst 12-hour book, our new Holden Racing the Lion book as well. Uh, we've got a bunch of cool stuff coming up. Our Glenn Seaton book is out, uh, due to be out at the end of 2020. You can get your pre-order in for that now. And there's a bunch of cool Peter Hughes prints. There's motorsport DVDs, including a brand new one, uh, Sensational Sierras, three classic rounds of the Australian Touring Car Championship from the Channel 7 Vault on DVD can be yours to own. Order it through our website and a bunch of other motorsport DVDs as well. Thanks too for all your podcast feedback. Keep it coming. Uh, there's a contact page on our website if you want to add there. Add a review wherever you listen to your, your podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Tell your mate. Share our posts on socials. Share the love. We want more people hearing what we're doing and some of the great chats that we've been having over the course of the last year or so. And if anyone's just picking up the podcast now, go back through. There's plenty of episodes for you to catch up on and great chats with interesting and famous names from Australian world motorsport. Don't forget to join the V8 Sleuth newsletter. Uh, jump on the website v8sleuth.com.au and you can subscribe to that to be kept abreast of all the latest and greatest of what we're up to. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You know the deal. You know where to find us. Keep finding us. We will keep on punching out cool content. In the meantime, thanks for listening again. A whole pile of fun with Grant Denya. We've got another podcast coming up in a week's time and I tell you what... We're going to talk about Super Touring. Will Dale will be back with me, and we're going to wax lyrical about the two-litre category of the 90s. So much to talk about. Look forward to hearing from you on that one with any of your suggestions and catching up with Will as well. In the meantime, though, signing off from the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timkin. Supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long. Panasonic Air Conditioning, Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. Book now a ticket to Supercars Unforgettable. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.